Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, and welcome to episode 300 of Historically Thinking. Design theorists popularized the idea of tame problems and wicked problems. Tame problems are answers to questions like how to get to Chicago or how to increase the battery life of a cell phone. As in mathematics and chess, tame problems have clarity in their aims and their solutions. Wicked problems, on the other hand, have neither clarity in their aims or in their solutions. But what about wild problems? By wild problems, my guest Russ Roberts refers to the problems of who to marry, whether to have children, where to move, how to forge a life well-lived. These are problems that can't be solved by calculation. In fact, argues Roberts, they're in parts of life that are outside the reach of science or the scientific mind. But wild problems are not wicked problems, which are very nearly impossible to solve. Wild problems are solved all the time, sometimes just by not deciding to solve them at all. Russ Roberts is the president of Schlem College in Jerusalem, John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and host of the podcast Econ Talk. This is his second appearance on Historically Thinking. He previously appeared in episode 99 when we discussed his essay, Gambling with Other People's Money and Intellectual Humility. Russ, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Great to be with you. Well, it was uh, episode 300. It's only appropriate that I have the person who got me into this uh, <laughs> by example. Um uh, when I was listening to Econ Talk on an iPod, perhaps in the in the, I think of the first age of podcasting, uh, yeah. when it came out, because you, I think you might even did you predate the iPod, uh, uh, the podcast, or just around the that's same. That's a good time? question. I can't. It's, my first episode was in two thousand and six. I suspect iPods were out. Mm. Uh, I remember. Um, I think they were out by that time. Yeah, I remember buying my my dad. A um, an MP3 player, not an iPod, right. and loading some Econ Talk episodes on it because he found it challenging to, to listen to them. Yeah, and I thought, well, I'll just buy him a cheap player and send it to him. Send it to him. He couldn't figure out how to turn it on. Uh, you know, my five year old at the time, or whatever, let's see, two thousand and six. It was probably a seven year old. Said, and I gave it to him, and I said, can can you turn this on? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, such is life. Such is life. So you uh, you've been around for a while, and when I heard it, and I was you know teaching history, and I was in a department at Augustana College where we thought we had a pretty good idea of how to teach historical thinking. I thought, boom, there it is. There's there's a model. You and Melvin Bragg of In Our Time, who is you know the master of the getting three academics together and herding those cats for forty minutes <laughs> to some sort of you know uh, conclusion. Um, so we'll get to that in a bit, but I want to talk about wild problems. I know you're, you're talked to death about this in a way I, I read this book and I, um, I heard the last two or three years of the podcast is in the book. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's there, fair. Are, there are a <laughs> lot of, uh, podcasts. I don't know if you were writing at the time or if the interviews served as, you know, provocations like the, the famous, would you like to be a vamp? How would you like to be a vampire episode? Uh, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Lord Kelvin. Could you describe okay. what's on the on the building at uh, where you studied at the University of Chicago? Got your PhD in economics. Yeah, it's actually it's carved in stone. It's a quote from um, Lord Kelvin. It's not, I think, a verbatim quote. I think in the uh, appendix of my somewhere in the back of my book, I go into that a little bit, but. Um, he says, if your knowledge cannot be measured, it is meager and I think he says insignificant. I can't remember the quote. You read the book more recently than I have. But basically he says, if your knowledge can't be measured, it's useless. Yeah. And um, there's a um, George Stigler who taught at the University of Chicago for a long time, professor of mine, uh, told Vernon Smith, who was visiting the campus, they passed that sign and George chuckled and said, um, and uh, when your knowledge can't be measured, it's meager and insignificant. <laughs> um, because George was funny, and uh, both those men went on to win Nobel Prizes. 
uh, and had different perspectives on the value of empirical knowledge that Kelvin was, uh, Lord Kelvin was talking about. But, you know, the, the idea in the modern world is that science and human advancement relies on data. And now we have big data. We have lots of data often about various problems. And I got interested in this because um, certainly I was trained in a intellectual framework that emphasized a theory produced a hypothesis. You went out and tested the hypothesis with data, and then you either confirmed it or rejected it based on that empirical work. Uh, typically, what we would call econometrics now, the application of data to what's called that then too, application of data to empirical economics questions. And um, it's really a powerful idea. It doesn't always work. We don't always have reliable data on, say, public policy questions that we might, might want the answers to. And a lot of public policy and economics, you could say, is sparring studies uh, people with different perspectives on an issue, finding data that's consistent with their claim on either side of an issue, like, say, the minimum wage. Um, that doesn't mean that empirical work's worthless. It, it does mean it's not as conclusive often as we'd like it to be. But that's the scientific method that applies to economics to the extent that it, it's able to be employed. Uh, what I was interested in and what I got interested in was I felt there was a, a temptation to extend the tools of science, certainly social science. That's what economics has done. It's happened in history as well. It happens in psychology. But hey, let's extend it to our personal life. Uh, let's find the perfect match for me. Let's use an algorithm based on thousands of dating observations and marriages both failed and successful to find out who the perfect woman is for me. Or... Um, if I want to know what government should do, I should measure how happy its citizens are, find out how that happiness varies with various government policies, and change the policies accordingly to maximize happiness. So these are common, I mean, I, I can barely say that with a straight face, but very smart people advocate that kind of uh, role for government in creating a happy citizenry, as if that were the goal of life, is to have a number on a scale of one to five be closer to five than one. And the government somehow is the source of that well-being. And so that I sort of, my book in some sense is just merely a rejection uh, of that kind of, I would call it faux science or scientism, false science in trying to use the tools of measurement and algorithms to solve problems that are fundamentally unsolvable. Should you have children? Who should you marry? Should you change your career? What should you major in? Um, these are all questions that sometimes data could be, I would say, a little bit helpful. It might be useful to know, for example, that people in a certain major make more than certain people in another major. But even that, which is a, a, a data point, is deeply misleading because you're not just like the average person. And so you'd have to take that with many grains of salt. And, but I'm more interested in places where there's no data, uh, like whether to marry or have children. Let me back up just a second. Um, as a historian, I'm deeply unfamiliar what happens in any other discipline. And I'm not really that familiar what goes on in history anymore. Yeah, not, sure. You know, I get you. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm always uh, astonished to find out from political scientists colleagues that political theorists are an ever dwindling part of the entire political science profession. Uh, maybe even an endangered species. Yeah. I've never, I've never gotten a quantified, you know, it, what percentage they are of the entire political science, but you know, that the quant reigns supreme. Yeah. Um, are there, and this is a, an innocent question. Are there economists left who aren't econometricians? Is that, is that tolerated? Uh, there, are. there are, but but it is a dwindling. I wouldn't say it's dwindling makes it sound like, I don't know if this is an accurate definition of dwindling, but to me, dwindling means close to zero too. It doesn't mean just getting fewer, yeah. becoming less uh, prominent. It means getting close to disappearing. Um, somewhere in the last uh, maybe 15 years, 
economists have always used statistics and data, but somewhere in the last 15 years, it, it became much more dominant among new, newly minted PhDs and, and, and young professors. And I think it remains so. There are people who do theory. There are still people who do, not many who do what I would call narrative economics or verbal economics or storytelling. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, to some extent, econometrics is storytelling with numbers uh, as opposed to determining the truth. Uh, but um, I, I, the, the point I would make for listeners who are, are not necessarily uh, deep in the weeds here is that if I asked you the cause of the Civil War in the United States or the cause of World War I or even the sources of um, material well-being in the modern world, uh, you, you would have trouble answering that question in an authoritative way. You, you, there are many ideas. There are many things to say and many answers would, we could rule out, which would be not unimportant. But the idea that we could quantify the causes of World War One, and say, well, 37% was due to interlocking treaties uh, on both sides and 26% was due to uh, nationalism and et cetera, would be kind of, you wouldn't just say, I don't think those are exactly right. You'd say, well, that's kind of silly. It's a tangled, complex web and history, unfortunately, or not, but it realistically doesn't disentangle all causes in a quantitative way, but you could try, <laughs> you know, you could look at all wars and you, you could try to uh, add things on a scale of one to five variables. And, and you could, there are things you could do to try to get more closer to the truth. Um, my journal view is the truth is elusive in these kind of settings. So um, I think a lot of times well, let me say it a different way. There are so many areas of our life where data makes it easier. Uh-huh. As you mentioned earlier, example from my book, uh, it's really uh, powerful that I can use an app like Waze or Google Maps to avoid traffic and get somewhere more quickly than than more slowly. That's really fantastic. With Arnold so, Schwarzenegger, that, give me the directions. That's just, just that's a fantastic. Yeah, bonus fantastic. Thing. Right, you can say it the voice, yeah. but. That app doesn't tell you whether you should go to Chicago. It also doesn't exist for your career. So you're in a hurry in life, say, and you want to be a CEO or you want to be a vice president or you want to own your own company. And uh, where's that roadmap? Oh, well, that, that app, where's that in the app store? And the answer is that there's no such app. And the attempt even to try to get there more quickly could lead to ruin, <laughs> not just, oh, I wish I'd picked a faster way to get there. In the attempt to find the fastest way, you might stumble badly. And so I, I think it's important, if nothing else, to remember that our urge for certainty and our urge to take things that work in one arena of our life and port them into another is often a mistake. It does not work that way. Uh, and that's um, difficult to remember. And and part of my book, I think, is just to remind you that, hey, you, be careful. It's not doesn't work that way. So I think that's a value. A couple uh, observations about that. One is it's fascinating, of course, that this has happened at precisely the same moment as the replication crisis in social yep. sciences, uh, yep. c- uh, which you've talked about on, on your podcast and which is uh, an abiding fascination of mine um and yet it's um and this is the 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 discovery that many well i mean it's not just social psychology experiments but that many social science experiments um air quotes intended um they just don't you can't replicate them um not that that necessarily that they were fraudulent to begin with although some many many were perhaps it's, that gets in the questions of intent, which we can't really adjudicate so easily. Um, but they just, no one can reproduce the results. That's one thing. The second is of course, and I'm starting to feel like an old man as I start to talk like this is over the last 15 years, it's hard to avoid podcasts uh, that don't have the term life hack. 
everyone wants a life hack. Everyone wants, you know, ways. Uh, It's, again, I think that a cultural historian in in the 22nd century will find it significant that life hacking and social uh, replication crisis were occurring at the same time. Um, And there are going to be those people, many of them who got their degrees in some sort of quantifiable field or quantified field who say, the question then of whether you should go to Chicago is uninteresting because that's what people like that do. <laughs> if, right. This gets us back to Lord Kelvin. It's just an uninteresting question. It's just an yeah. uninteresting question. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess, um, I guess like, like, like Thrasymachus in the first part of the Republic, ultimately Socrates can't talk to him. Um, in a way you can't really talk to people like that. There's a certain point where yeah. there's, communication's not going to work. But what would you say to that person? Well, it's interesting because I've talked to a number of them and I, <laughs> and I, when I wrote the book, I wondered whether I was creating a straw person in, in my critique of what I would call narrow rationality uh, or narrow utilitarianism, cost benefit analysis uh-huh. about the day-to-day benefits of a, of a, or costs of a certain decision. And, and yet over and over again, Twice. Okay. Not over and over again. Twice. But that is over and over, I guess, twice. Uh, a couple, <laughs> At least a couple times in my life. At least by, journalist, probably, by journalistic standards, it certainly is. Yeah. Well, three is definitely a plenty. But, it's a trend. Uh, I find it striking that people will tell me that, true, you can't quantify all the things you need to quantify to make that decision rationally. But therefore, what's the therefore? My therefore is use a different uh, method for making a decision because you're going to be led astray. But m- many people's response, and I think they do this, um, they say this with uh, pride and and feeling very self-righteous, is, well, we can't measure everything, but you do the best you can. And that's the best we can do. And, you know, I often... Um, you know, my favorite example of this was the person who told me when I cr- was critical of some of the measures of risk that were used in the run-up to the financial crisis, mainly a, a technique called value risk, which is a, a measure of a portfolio's overall ri- riskiness. VAR. Um, VAR requires a certain set of assumptions for it to be valid. Those assumptions never hold. So when you point that out, people say, but but that's the best you can do. Okay, so it's not perfect, but it's the best you can do. And I and I say, but it's not right. And they say, well, what's the alternative? Using your gut? And the answer is no. The alternative is to be aware that you do not have a scientific, precise measure of risk. And that doesn't mean, therefore, you flip a coin or just go with your intuition of what feels right at the time. Uh, it means you have to be very cautious. And the, the, the risk particularly of, of overconfidence is that when day in, day out, your portfolio, your portfolio does not explode, you're then lured, seduced into thinking that you actually have a valid measure of risk because everything's fine. I always think of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's example, which I think he got from Bertrand Russell, the turkey, it's very apropos, where the day before Thanksgiving, the turkey who uh, is fed every morning, has a nice warm place to sleep every day uh, through the um, early weeks of November. And all the data overwhelmingly point out, point to the uh, confirmation of the hypothesis that the farmer is a loving, caring uh, being who will take care of the turkey. And that holds until the last Thursday of the month when the turkey is killed and slaughtered for Thanksgiving dinner. And so the accumulation of confirming evidence, which seems uh, to reinforce your your bias, uh, actually is just reinforcing your bias. It's not telling you valuable information about what's actually happening. And so I think that, that challenge... Um, you know, I can't stop thinking about this uh, application. I got a uh, an ad on YouTube for a seven minute workout, 
And boy, isn't don't you wish there were a seven minute workout? <laughs> I mean, I do. I mean, actually working out is is really unpleasant and it takes a while. So that seven minute thing, and I noticed they don't, it's interesting, they don't go down to six. I think they realize that it, that six is just not credible, but somehow seven, close enough, studies show that seven minutes of the right kind of intensity and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's like free. When you see the, the sign free something and you, you have an emotional response, you may not have an intellectual response, but you, you do have an, an, often an emotional response. And that seven minute thing is like, yeah, yeah. Now your head, that's your heart. Your head says, well, that's really plausible, but you want it just like you want the life hack, the seven things you can do to, to be twice as productive, how to multitask. Here's the best system for taking notes and books. I get that. It's like, I, that, that's like the top of my medium uh, website recommendations. <laughs> and darn, if I don't want to click on that every time I, I do, I do resist. Uh, I don't click on the seven minute workout and uh, I don't click on the the sweatshirt that's selling like hotcakes in your area, but I keep getting it. And it must be working. Some people must can't, they just can't resist it. Uh. So but what I'm suggesting here is that these, these things that look and feel scientific, data-based, uh, lots of science statistics and, and, and evidence in certain settings are not so helpful. And you have a built-in uh, weakness in, in craving those and overestimating their reliability. And so it's a re- just red flag. Just be careful. A lot of those are misleading. So I was unfair uh, when I said that only in the last 15 years we've, um, well, we've come up with the phrase life hack. The fact is, is humans have been trying, (laughs) humans have been trying to life hack for a long, long time. And case in point, uh, you have a richly imagined thought experiment of giving advice to Charles Darwin about marriage. And lo and behold, Charles Darwin was doing a life hacky thing, which I could advertise on YouTube as a yeah. way of, you know, of coming up with, with solving difficult problems. So could you describe that, that incident sure. in Darwin's life and, and what it means to you? Sure. So, uh, you know, it actually is, as far as I'm sure this is not uh, exactly historically true that Benjamin Franklin created the first cost-benefit analysis or the first pro-con list. I joke about it. It's probably in the Garden of Eden. You know, Eve's trying to figure out whether to take the apple. And um, so I suspect it's it's pretty old. But Benjamin Franklin felt very strongly about it. And he said that, you know, what you do when you're trying to make a tough decision, you should make a list of the pluses, a list of the minuses, the pros and cons. And then what you do is you try to cross cross them out. You look for pros that are of equal value to the cons or two pros are equal to one con in their value. And so soon enough, you'll, you'll eliminate one side and you'll know what to do. And um, Darwin, I don't think he got it for Benjamin Franklin. It's a very normal thought as to look at the pluses and minuses of any decision. I don't think it's, that's not rocket science. I don't think crossing out things is rocket science, but Darwin try, is trying to decide whether to get married. He's 29 years old. We have his journal entry, which is pretty extraordinary in his own hand. Uh, and he basically um, gives a list of the pros and cons, and um, it's overwhelmingly negative. Uh, he should not get married. It's pretty clear. It, it's going to, he might have to leave London, he worries. He might have loss of time due to children. He might have loss of happiness because his children will get sick and die, which was very common in Darwin's time. Um, he's not going to have time for, to read. He's, his research will suffer, et cetera, et cetera. And when he makes the pluses, they're things like female chit-chat, um, which is really not, he does say better than a dog anyhow, which in today's world, he'd be canceled immediately, but uh, different time, cut him, we'll cut him some slack. And I, you know, my point there is very simple that uh, when you're looking in from the outside, if you've never been married, and you're trying to figure out what the pluses and minuses are, the minuses kind of jump out at you. Uh, and the pluses are not only hard to think of, but you can't really access them because you have to get married first and be married for a while to, to figure out what the pluses are. And the reason for that is 
interesting as well, which is even if Darwin hangs out with married friends and goes over to their house for dinner, especially at his era of Victorian properness, um, is he really going to get an insight into whether his hosts have a good marriage? Is he really going to get any insight into uh, I mean, what? I'd say it's worse than that. Yeah. I, I don't know if I, I don't think I came up with this phrase, but I say it to my wife all the time that everyone else's marriage is a mystery. Full yeah. stop. There we go. And and I realized, you know, a long, and that was, I realized that when I was single and I, and these were like friends married to a friend, but I really didn't understand how, and with good marriages, and these, and I'm going to use only good marriages in this sample. Um, yeah. Marriages that other people who are married respect. And I don't understand them. I don't understand sometimes how well married people get along. There's, there's a, there's a intense mystery that's going to be, I think, unique to every marriage of how that marriage works. And I argue in the book that if you ask a member of a, of a married couple that seems to you from the outside to be a good marriage and you ask them what's good about it, not, not what makes it work well, but simply what's gratifying about being married for 34 years as I've been, uh, it's hard to put into words. Um, it's a, similar, I argue, to the value of having children. Uh, you know, you can you can talk about what. You know, it's really hard to talk about why it's pleasant to be a parent. There are many negatives. You know, I argue in the book there are many negatives of being a parent, and on a day to day basis, it might even be the case that the negatives there are more bad days than good days at various times of, of your children's lives when you're their parent. But most of us who are parents are pretty happy we're parents and pretty happy uh, that we made that decision, if it was a decision. And again, I think, first of all, language is imperfect, very hard to communicate it. And the second part is most people don't want to talk about it. It's personal. And if they have imperfect relationships with their children or with their spouse, they don't want to share that, particularly with strangers. So it's really hard to find out what marriage is like until you get married. It's hard to find out what a parent is like, being a parent is like until you become a parent. And um, that means that, and of course, there's also this other problem, which I took from the philosopher L.A. Paul at, in her book, Trans, uh, Transformative Experiences. The other problem is, well, not only do you not know what it's going to be like, but how you feel about it is going to change once you make the decision. So driving a minivan and having children seems like the death of hope when you're single. But once you're married, it's really kind of comforting and makes your life meaningful and a bunch of other strange, cliche-sounding things. So you really have a difficult time making what we would normally call a rational decision. Very different from the decision about what movie to go to tonight or um, whether we invest in a particular company uh, where you might have some valuable information about its reliability, its, 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 its competitive, its place in a competitive market and so on. Um, so yeah. it's tricky. Um, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I, I don't want to talk too much about the, the book because there's lots of other things in your life I want to talk to you about, um, which interests me strangely. Uh, but let's uh, let's uh, talk about sure. uh, uh, something that happened to me when I was a senior in college. Okay. I was walking uh, from I think Levering Hall for 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 Hopkins uh, alums from Levering Hall into the south entrance of Gilman, and there, in some periwinkle by the side of the path, I found five hundred dollars. Mm. Uh, this was a lot of money, actually. Now this is a lot, it feel like a, a lot. Of, it was a lot of money in nineteen ninety one. What would an economist tell me to do with that? And, or what do people think an economist would tell me to do with that money? This is historically thinking, uh, but what's the economic thinking that should be involved or not be involved with that? So if there's, it was inside a wallet with a name and an address, uh, there's an ethical dilemma for most people, maybe not all people. It, it, um, it was just $500. In, well, in that's old, a little more complicated. That's yeah. a little more complicated. Um, but in, in, in my book, I write about when you find an identified $500. Um, and I was talking to an economics, high school economics class, and they all said economics says, if no one saw you pick up the money, you should keep it. 
And I thought, boy, that's a sterile and depressing view of economics. It's like over 100 kids across multiple advanced placement classes in a very good high school, private high schools. And I thought, well, that's depressing. Uh, I said, wouldn't it be imaginable that on a pure co- even on a pure cost benefit analysis, that the guilt you might feel or the satisfaction you might, f- the guilt you might feel keeping it or the satisfaction you might get from returning it could mean that it'd be rational to give it back. And they, they thought, well, that's it. Yeah, they thought that was okay. But the real point I wanted to make, which I focus on in the book is maybe you do want to keep it. Maybe you don't have any guilt, but you might aspire to be the kind of person who feels guilty and who wants to do the right thing, even if right now you're the kind of person who does the wrong thing. And that whole idea of aspiration that Agnes Callard talks about, I interviewed her for Econ Talk, um, and I really liked her book, as well as L.A. Paul's are in a way very closely related. They did of aspiring as opposed to, as we do in economics, taking your preferences as given. And, and, and that whole idea, taking your preferences as given and then doing the, the best thing you can do for your happiness, that doesn't work with these kind of problems. And about like childbirth or having a child, being a parent or, or being married. And and it doesn't work for ethical problems very well if, if you might imagine yourself becoming a better human being than you are today. Maybe not tomorrow, but a week from today or a month from today or a year from today, you might. In fact, you could argue that a lot of the greatest literature that we have is exactly about this. You know, I, for some reason, maybe it's because we're, we're getting into winter here. I'm thinking about Scrooge. The whole point of A Christmas Carol is that you can change. And that's the, in a way, that's the antithesis of the economic way of thinking. The economic way of thinking is really powerful for what you're like now, what you might do with material well-being, you know, and even some non-material well-being. But the idea that you could become a better human being or a different human being is, is really uh, outside the normal realm of economic theory. And therefore we should not use economics in certain situations. And I would say the lost wallet is maybe one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting that the, um, that there's not even the idea in, uh, in economics that, that that life is about that change. That, 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 you know, I mean, certainly that was all the, 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 all the source material going into the development of economics would indicate, I mean, from Plato to Aristotle and so on, and to Adam Smith. To Adam Smith. Would indicate that that is the goal. And even to the 1950s, I quote Frank Knight, and I quote James Buchanan, two very illustrious economists. James Buchanan won the Nobel Prize. Frank Frank Knight would have if he had been alive when it was in place, or if he had been active when it was in place. I don't know when he died. But somehow in the last, again, it's, it's, it's related to what we said earlier, as economics has become more, air quotes, scientific, those kind of questions have faded into the background because mathematical modeling of that challenge, what should I aspire to become, does not work. And therefore, it's outside the purview of modern economic theory and, and therefore not of interest. And I think it's a big part of human life. Uh, you know, a similar flaw in, in economics. I love economics, by the way. You know, I, and I hate people who make fun of it all the time. So I'm not one of those people because the one things I'm making fun of are the right things. Fun of the wrong things. <laughs> like that, but, like, yeah, like Harry, Tr- like Harry Truman. Yeah. That Harry Truman. Yeah, what is, one-armed economist. Yeah. yeah oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, but, but I was, I was, uh, so to say that, you know, the, the, the methodology of economics is overwhelmingly individualistic. What is best for me? And therefore, the parts of our life where we do things with other people, marriage, um, volunteering, uh, teamwork, um, parties, a huge part of life or social life, which is a huge part of our life, is not about what's in it for me. If it is, no one wants to have you invite you to your party anymore because you crowd out the dance, you're obnoxious on the dance floor and eat all the best, you pick out the best food from the snacks, all the cashews and leave the, the, the 
greasy peanuts for the other people. I can think of some say, of your I can think of some of your former colleagues who do exactly that. I'm not gonna name <laughs> any names, but yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I think economics is very powerful for what it focuses on when it's relevant. If you're not careful, you apply it to things that are not relevant. And similarly, the tools of science and empirical analysis work very well for certain problems, not so much for others. Yeah. It's um I was thinking I, I should, Yeah, go on. You go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I, well, I was thinking this this uh, last weekend. I was at the uh, family farm, and I was using a chainsaw to clear up some brush along one of the fields. And uh, it's a very powerful tool, the chainsaw. I love it. I love I loved using a chainsaw. I would not want to comb my hair with it or shave um, or lots of other things. They're very good for cutting down cedars. Uh, yeah. it, there's a Neil Stevenson character, I think in Snow Crash, some minor character who observes that certain technologies, and I'll say technates as well, um, that the use of them obscures, I think if this is my language, they obscure the end for what it's, in, uh, that's intended, uh, the power of the techne, the power of the technology could be napalm, machine guns, chainsaws, uh, econometrics, um, yeah. social history <laughs> techniques. Yeah. Um, sometimes the power of it is so immense and, and thrilling, um, you know, I've seen people. I, I've I've seen it done, econometrics, and I, by people I respect. And there's obviously a great deal of delight in being able to pin down something quantifiable about race preference in the Bronx in the '50s yeah. or something like that, um, and really be able to nail that bastard down um, using calculus. Uh, and but sometimes you can lose sight with it. I. I Get that back to Stevenson's point. Sometimes that can obscure your end. Yeah, um, for sure. Well, let's talk about another choice. Um, how does one choose to become? Talk about wild problems. Choose to become president of the only liberal arts college in Israel. Yeah, so I did that about a year and a half ago, um, and I write about it in the book. It's, it was it was not an easy choice. Um, if I had said no to the opportunity, I would have been very happy. And I was very happy. I don't, I don't think, I don't have a lot of regret in my life as a character trait. Maybe this would have changed. I would have been different about this, but I think I could have been totally happy uh, not applying for this job, not taking it and going on doing what I was already doing, which was very meaningful to me, which was being a research fellow at the Hoover Institution uh, and having the total freedom to work on whatever I want. I've given up a lot of that freedom. I do. I took the. I applied for the job. I got the job, and moved to Israel about a year and a half ago. Um, I took that job, and you know we haven't talked about this yet. I've mainly talked about why these decisions are not easily helped by analytical methods. So then, raise the question: What what should you use? And I mm -hmm. suggest that in the Bible, a number of answers to that question in the book, but. In this case, I felt that the opportunity to be uh, to make a contribution to to the state of Israel something I care deeply about, um, and to contribute to an educational institution which emphasizes the deep study of texts in small groups another thing I care deeply about, and a pedagogy I'm uh, increasingly enamored of seemed like what I was meant to do. It, it seemed like it would, the opportunity to become that leader of that institution was uh, hard for me to resist. And so I, I took the job. It's really hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a multifaceted job in a foreign country where I don't speak the language fluently. And uh, so I'm an immigrant and I'm at an age where learning a new language is not straightforward. And so there are many, many challenges of being here. At the same time, it's deeply rewarding. So it's a great example of the kind of phenomenon we're talking about where, you know, day to day, any one day might not be great, might be really hard. Uh, but overall, it's incredibly meaningful. And I'm really glad I'm doing it. So at least so far. So uh, you mentioned the multifaceted nature of the job. We'll get back to that because I'm this. I think you're the first college president I've had on. And you're a college president that we can talk about with things with um, sure. the, pre the president of UVA or Arizona state, or, I mean, what do you even talk to like 
it's like, I, I don't even know. It's just what you would talk to them about what they do. But a liberal arts college is a different, a different kettle of fish. But let's talk about Shalem College first. Um, okay. How big is it? It's the only liberal arts college. Is it the only private college in Israel? I mean, and what's, what's, uh, why, what's. No, but, so it's, it's, first of all, it's tiny. It's, it's, it's unusual in many ways. First of all, it's tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tiny country. There are only 10 million people live here roughly. So uh, tiny is relative, but we take 50 students a year. We expect to take 75 next year. That's a huge increase of 50%, but it's only 25 more students. Uh, so the, um, but it's we're very, very small compared to other colleges here in, in Israel. Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University, Ben Gurion, Bar Ilan, uh, and so on. So it's um, it's very small. We uh, our classes are taught in Hebrew, by the way. It's it's for Israelis. Israelis who go to college tend to do so between the ages of twenty three and twenty five. They will have had two gap years, often certainly one, almost certainly one, but often two and sandwich that around uh, two to five years of army service. So our students are anywhere from 23 to 27 or so when they get here. So in that sense, they're very different than an American college student in some ways. I've thought about that, how how wildly different. I mean, there's, uh, I loved orientation week in American colleges uh, because I would look at these, they're so much more interesting than they were three months before. At least in my experience, uh, they've gone through, if their parents haven't divorced, uh, most of them are experiencing the greatest sociological shock of their life. You know, if, if they're, if they come any distance to school. Um, and so all of a sudden they're completely different people in some ways, socially, they're coming up with, yeah. yeah. And, and they are coming up with new social connections and they're going through all that, some of the asking themselves some of the fundamental questions they'll ask themselves for the rest of their life. Uh, will people like for me? Sure. Uh, can I do the work? Um, and, um, but your students are even more interesting, <laughs> but they have none of that because they've already experienced tremendous shocks in their life. Yeah. And um, some of them have had to do very difficult things as, as yeah. members of the Israeli defense force. Um and continue to do those in, they have reserve duty Uh uh, that continues through their young adult life. And so they'll miss an exam. They'll miss (laughs) um, college experiences that, because they have to be in reserve duty. Um, I will say this though. And it's, if you ask me, what are the biggest differences? The most obvious difference I think is misleading that they're, they're much older than American college students. It's a little bit misleading they remain remarkably young, exuberant, and even to my jaded eyes, innocent, which is hard to understand. Um, I think, I don't know the answer, but but I think part of the answer is that Israel is a very family-centric culture. <laughs> and a teenager in Israel is not a teenager in America. They don't feel the Many of them rebel, I'm sure, in many ways against their parents. They begin to, to separate from their parents, as, as you were alluding to earlier, uh, before they go to college, obviously, uh, or before they go to the army in this case. But they often come home for the weekend when they're in the army, which is very alien to an American uh, mindset. The idea that you would go home virtually every weekend when you go off to college because that's what everybody else does, is just doesn't happen. There are people who like to live close to home. There are people who visit more often than, uh, than not because they've got laundry or love for the for their parents. But it's just very different here. Um, so the first thing is, even though they're older, I find them not so different in terms of their uh, charming ex- eagerness and exuberance to learn. It's, re- it's really quite, quite moving. Um, the real thing that's different, and I haven't experienced this firsthand, is that studying the Iliad among uh, military veterans has got to be different than studying it with 18-year-olds leaving home for the first time. So, you know, every one of our students has served in the, in the military. They know how to use a weapon, virtually all of them. Uh, and if, unfortunately, many of them probably have used a weapon at some point. Not, I wouldn't say a, they haven't 
Thank God there hasn't been a war here of a major kind in a while, but there's plenty of military activity where Israel feels it has to defend itself. Um, so when you read about the death and slaughter and the need, the desire for revenge and the role of courage that permeates Homer's Iliad, uh, it's got to feel different if you've been in the army. Um, so there's that. Um, this is a very small country geographically. So that's another reason people go home a lot because it's not very far. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and anyway, there are a lot of things that are fascinating about, about this institution. Um, but you ask, you know, is it private? We, we take no money from the government. We won't ever get any money from the government in the foreseeable future. We're too small. They think we're inefficient. Uh-huh. We don't have 300 person lecture classes, 500 person lecture classes. Most of our classes are 25 students or fewer. And in the eyes of the Israeli educational establishment or the American one for that matter, that's inefficient. Why wouldn't you have a bunch of, you know, 100 students, 200 students in a class? The answer is because we believe that small group conversation around a difficult question or text produces knowledge. Being lectured at does not produce knowledge. It it produces information, if you're lucky, uh, often forgotten, can stimulate the mind. There are great lecturers. There are. But but most of the time, it doesn't work. Not as many as they think they are. That's just... Correct. Yeah, Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, so it's a... a, And and to be clear, it's not St. John's. It's not just a great books place. So what makes it different from a St. John's? John's? Because you have this four-year core curriculum. Right. Um, No, it's not four years. So we have have a year and a half of the core curriculum that everybody takes together. More or less. The more or less is that if you take Western literature, you might take, you might read Shakespeare or Jane Austen, and this section and the other section you might meet, read uh, something something different. But they all take Greek literature. They all take Greek philosophy. They all take the uh, Hebrew Bible. They all take the Christian Bible. They all read the Quran. Um, they take they all take courses in the Zionism, the, in the history of their country. Um, and it's not just the history, they get cultural, they read the literature of Zionism, uh, they study the politics of Zionism, and that, and they take a science, two science classes and an art or a history or a music class. So in that first year and a half, they're getting a broad-based education that you can't get anywhere else in the country, and you can't get it at most American institutions anymore either. Um, and then they major in either philosophy and Jewish thought. Middle Eastern and Islamic studies or strategy, diplomacy, and security. Those are our three majors. And so, and that's, and ideally, it's not always the case, but ideally the classes in those majors draw on that core that they have, they've studied in the beginning of the experience. And so it's a very unusual educational model. It's very alien to this culture, which is, was the university life here was Germanic. It was, you know, it was built in the 19. 30s and 40s by immigrants from Germany who wanted to import Germanic uh, pedagogy and methodology into the Israeli experience. Um, and it worked I'm in, in a the country it, where, it worked in the United States. That's what they were saying to uh, themselves. But, but, but in, yeah. the, in the United States, it was layered. Uh, places like Hopkins were layered on top of a, multiple different existing traditions: English tradition, yeah, and, Scottish tradition. You know. The, and the challenge here for me, among other, there are a few challenges, it's the multifaceted part, but, you know, part of the challenge is that as in America, it's a challenge, of course, that you're very aware of, uh, the hot fields are STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And the idea that you could thrive or flourish without a degree in one of those things or a business degree would be the other one that would be popular is is hard for people to understand. And yet, I believe that the training that we give our students prepares them both for life, which is not unimportant, and career. And that it helps you think, reason, listen, speak, and so on. You know, learning how to listen respectfully in a group of 25 people arguing about what a text really means is not an unimportant cultural phenomenon to send 75 to 100 of Israel's best and brightest students out into their society 
with that ability is, I think, very important. Uh, to become thoughtful is very important, even if it's hard to specify exactly what that means. The idea of not being fooled <laughs> by people who try arguments that aren't really well grounded is the kind of thing that our students learn. And so I think it's an unbelievably, I argue it gives our students superpowers, but a lot of people would say, oh, it sounds like a lot of the humanities, they're worthless. <laughs> uh, they're not if they're done correctly. And, um, and of course we do layer it with this, these other disciplines on top of it after that core curriculum. So Which it's a pretty cool place. The late Peter Lawler talked about STEM and said, the pro- there's nothing wrong with STEM. The problem is, is that most people leave out the S the E and the M. So what we really have is T. And the and T is usually um, you know, it's not very useful stuff. Um would you well con- it's useful for some things. Would you consider it is, but would you consider like bringing like say the S and the, the science and the mathematics into the uh, in as a as a as a major? Well they get a little of it, as I said. They take a couple they take a class in uh, biology, they take a class in neuroscience here. Uh, and I think those are wonderful. Uh, you know, there are many, many things to learn in the world that are valuable. So it, the other thing I th- like to think our students learn how to do is they learn how to learn, which in a way is another superpower. Um, but I like what Leon Cass, our Dean of Faculty says, uh, science is good for asking, uh, you know, can we, for technology, can we do this? What the great questions and texts of, of of the world's literature, especially the West, are good at is should we? <laughs> Can we versus should we? Um, it's useful, I think, in a society to have people who ask should we, not just can we or how. And I think the STEM mindset is how. And the, the countervailing force could and should be, should we do this? Now, one interesting feature of Shalem is a language study. Um, do all students learn Arabic at Shalem? No, just the ones who study the major Middle Eastern Islamic studies. It's really kind of amazing. It turns out, I didn't know this, uh, there are two kinds of Arabic. There may be more, but there's at least two, which are conversational and written. Uh, colloquial conversational Arabic is nothing like, evidently, literary Arabic. So to read the great works of, of Arabic literature or, or uh, theology, you need literary Arabic. To talk to your neighbor uh, down the street, you need colloquial or conversational Arabic. And our students put in a lot in that major, put in a lot of hours to get fluency in those two, in both. And we were the first institution, this is I can hard to say this with a straight face. Evidently, we were the first institution in Israel to teach Arabic in Arabic. <laughs> Novel idea. Evidently, in other places, they taught it in Hebrew. Uh, I see the appeal of that because the student already knows Hebrew. So that's you're off to a good start. But uh, we thought it'd be better to teach Arabic in Arabic. And we expose our students to uh, many hours with native Arab speakers who who we um, hire to just talk with our students so that they can become yeah, fluent. I- I mean, you, you, it, you, it tickles so many of my prejudices about the way that I wish American schools would teach languages uh, immersively. Yeah. And Shalem's got yeah. them immersive. You got the twice weekly tutorials with native speakers, an annual yeah. b- boot camp, uh, summer language immersion programs, so much better than just teaching it on a semester basis. Yeah. So much more useful. Uh, I, took, I took 10 years of French <laughs> right. through 12th grade. And I took some in college. I didn't get much out of it, which is startling. The, the in terms of the, the return was very small. Mm-hmm. There's some benefit. I, you know, I, I learned about some vocabulary that runs across all Romance languages. So when I'm in Italy or Spain, which it helps uh, a little bit, but uh, I didn't learn to speak French. I learned the rules of speaking French or writing French or reading French. And I didn't internalize those very effectively. So Kind of crazy. Yeah, immersion's better. Immersion. I think it's how we learn language. Yeah, it is how we learn language. Um, And let's talk about the multifaceted nature of being president of this club. So um, what's some of the stuff that you have to do from day to day? I mean, I I I imagine like uh, from an American perspective, I say immediately, obviously you're fundraising. But that's that's not 90% of your job. No, no, and it can't be. Um, 
so there's fundraising. Um, and, and again, we have to raise all of our revenue. I didn't, we didn't talk about this. All the students here are on scholarship because they're strong students who would otherwise get a scholarship at a competing university. So we, they're getting, um, they pay no tuition directly. Wow. And we give them a bit of a stipend to give them the chance to actually do the work without having to take a job on the side. Um, so after we, it's not just me, but our, the team of people who fundraise here have to cover our costs. And we've done it for 10 years now. The 10 years of life has been in existence, which is um, nice. Keeps the lights on. Yeah. Uh, so that's a chunk of the job. The other chunks are management of the staff and, and people who work with me. Um, and then there's issues like, what else should we be doing? What's our vision for the place? What's our strategy for improving, uh, making our teaching better, uh, improving our classroom experience? Is the evaluation form, you know, correct? We've, we've changed our evaluation form since I, I mean, I've done lots and lots of things. I'm sure many of them are mistakes. The most interesting, I hope not, but, but I, but the most interesting part of the job for me as a former really narrow academic who did little or no administration through most of my career is I have to make decisions all the time. And it's kind of ironic given the, what we've been talking about with my book, but most of the decisions I make are not wild problems. Um, you know, I, the decision to go from 50 entering students to 75, I think is pretty easy. Uh, there are pluses and minuses about that decision, but it, it's not an existential uh, it's, it's not like getting married. It's a different kind of decision, but I make those all the time. And I was someone who most academics, I think a lot of us were in academics to avoid making those decisions <laughs> that people in business have to make, you know, often, um, you know, our decisions are mostly, what should I work on this morning? Should I spend another half hour on Twitter? That was the kind of decision I had to make before. And now they're harder. They're a little more challenging. And, um, I think it's, it's been a growth experience. Um, you know, managing people is incredibly uh, challenging. You know, it's a little like, I, had a, I don't think I put this in the book. I, I wanted to, but didn't get in there. A friend of mine says, until he, his father told him that until you get married, you're an idiot. And I, you know, I, I, that rings true for me. I don't know about you, but I, I, marriage matures a person dramatically. So does managing people. Managing people forces you to grow up in ways that you could otherwise avoid. You know, you have to accept certain imperfections in yourself and others. You have to ignore certain uh, slights and things that, that people aren't aware of that you're dealing with. You just have to let it kind of roll off your uh, back. And that's great. Hard sometimes, but it makes you a better person, I think. What are uh, some of the things that you're trying to avoid happening to Shalem? Um, you know, a lot of, a lot, and I'm asking that because, you know, in, in American higher education, um, it's amazing what someone giving $15 million will do to the direction of institution. You'll create departments, yeah. buildings, certainly, but departments, uh, majors, schools that you don't really need yeah. or want, <laughs> uh, but someone yeah, gave you happens. 15, it happens. And, um, so it, it, the American higher colleges are often dogs with multiple leashes um, and yeah. people tucking them in various ways. Um, you have the benefit of, of being just 200 undergraduates at this moment of yeah. being small. So there's certain things. I mean, I imagine an elaborate campus is not on your, is not in the horizon or nor ever will be. Um, uh, no, we have, we have a beautiful building and that's our campus. We're on a larger campus uh, green air, green space here in, in Jerusalem. But uh, what you're alluding to, I think, is a really important part of management in a nonprofit, probably mm -hmm. in a profit, for-profit enterprise think, as well. Which I is, think so. Which is mission creep. Um, and fooling yourself about what you're doing and why. Um, we are, our mission is to make this country stronger and more effective and more meaningful because there will be 50 to 75 students graduating every year with the training and understanding that we try to allow them to attain. That's our mission, period. 
It's not to create a cozy environment for people who want a small college relative to a large college. We do provide that, but it, it's tempting to think about that in, in ways that maybe are not consistent with that other mission because it makes some of the students really happy and mm-hmm. they appreciate it. So there, there are a lot of things like that. The other kind of thing like that is someone offers you a lot of money to start a center or a school or a, a new program that actually is at best orthogonal to the mission and at worst detrimental to it. And I think uh, it's really easy to convince yourself that it's, it, no, no, it's consistent. Really, it is. And so many charities that I've been involved with lose their purpose and become fundraisers, period. They don't care what the money's for because they just want a big budget. It's a classic problem in, in management. And um, you know, I when I got here, I tried to focus on making the classroom better, which I didn't couldn't do much of the first year we were here. But as a team, we've been working very diligently on improving what we think is already well. We're the number one uh, ranked college in the country in terms of customer satisfaction. So there's 62, 60, 59 or sixty two. I can't remember. About sixty colleges here in Israel, and in terms of quality of faculty and quality of faculty student relationships. We're ranked first based on student evaluations. I'm really proud of that. No, I'm not. I'm a little bit proud of that because it's better than being first than 50th. But it's really not what I care about. What I really care about is that the experience in the classroom is transformative for the students. Um, How do you? It's hard to keep that in mind. It's hard to keep that in mind. That's a revolutionary thing, as you know, from an American perspective, that a president of a college is going to be actually interested in that. I mean, it's sometimes it's hard for department chairs to do that. I mean, they're they're, often not. (laughs) Yeah, they they're not interested, or but and if they were, it would be there would be it could lead to a great deal of how shall we say interpersonal tension. Yeah. Uh, so how do you go about doing that, uh, even in so, a, a school that size? Yeah, so we've, we're have we pretty focused, which helps. Uh, it's not like I've revolutionized the focus, but it hasn't changed. It was there before I got here. Um, the One of the things we changed, which I alluded to earlier, is, is how we evaluate faculty. So... In most places I've taught at, and I've taught at maybe, I don't know, five or six American universities, first of all, nobody cares about your teaching at all, <laughs> usually. Uh, and if they do, it's it's as long as you didn't set the room on fire, you know, literally, as long as you didn't burn the building down, you're fine. As long as nobody's like picketing, you're ignored. If you're paid attention to it all, uh, it's usually on a scale of one to five, How you know, how much... How did you like this class? How did you like this professor? Mm-hmm. And we call that customer satisfaction in, among ourselves. It's not irrelevant, but it's not the metric I want to focus on. And it's nice to think about this again, relative to what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. What The metric I really care about is not a metric, which is the reflections of students about how the course changed their way of thinking, changed the way they see themselves, uh, opened up their mind to things they hadn't thought of before. Those are not metrics. Those are qualitative assessments of of class. And um, we put a lot more stock in those than we did before. And we put stock in them, period, which is rare. <laughs> in most colleges, nobody cares. So we do. That's This is our raison d'etre. This is our reason for being. And um, uh we want teachers, ideally, who, again, I, I want to I use words carefully. This, the teachers don't transform the students. The teachers create an, a great teacher. A great teacher creates an environment for the student to transform themselves with the aid of the other students in the class working together to understand something that's the subject of the class. That idea is radical in 2022 as a college experience. Um, And uh, that's our goal. And I want there to be more of that rather than less. And so how do you, how do you think about quality improvement in that setting where 
you know, it's very standard to say, well, last year our, our, our department averaged a 3.6 out of five. And uh, that's a it, that's up from 3.4. So well done. <laughs> and I, I don't want that. Um, that's not the measure I want to use. And I, I know that that's faux science. So um, the hard part of this job really is the hard part about anything like this, which is the real impact takes place over time. Like the first week of class, we have, we have some new faculty here. We're very excited about them. We think they're magnificent teachers. So I want to run down to the class after the first lecture, and it's not a lecture, the first seminar and say, how was it? How was it? Was it good? Was it great? Uh, I was standing outside the building, a student walked by, I said, how's it going? He said, fantastic. I said, fantastic. That's really amazing. That's my, I wish I could be fantastic. <laughs> so I aspire to be fantastic. I said, anything particular going on in your life? He said, yeah, we're studying the Mino by Plato. And I, I, my brain's exploding. And I thought, that's amazing. You know, that makes my heart sing. You don't get a lot of that feedback every day because you can't. You can't. I don't want to stand out and hang around the classes and, and, and try to... And I don't want students to think, oh, I know how to make the president happy. I'll just tell him the class is great and he'll leave me alone. So I have to kind of lay low. And uh, at the end of the year, we find out that so-and-so was a great teacher, did a great job. And then five years from now, when that student is out in the world and they're using the insights and the things that change them from their years in our classrooms, that's the real payoff. And that by itself is really hard to observe. I, I had an alum here the other day. He's in a cancer research startup trying to cure cancer. And um, here he is working in a STEM field, but he's got a you know liberal arts background. I uh, studied philosophy and Jewish thought with this, our core curriculum. I, I think he was, that was his major. Or maybe it was Middle Eastern Islamic studies. It doesn't matter. But he's, he's in a cancer startup. And I said, how did... How did your experience here help you? He said, well, first of all, it taught me how to learn. I'd teach myself biology and physics when I got in this job, and I wasn't afraid of it. And I said, well, that's all. That's pretty good. And then he said, but, you know, I work with scientists, doctors, and marketing people, and I've created a narrative that they can all sort of feel they're part of. He said, I could have done that without Shalem. So that is the payoff. That is where the real, for me, satisfaction comes along. And a lot of times you'll never hear that. You know, that student never comes back, doesn't cross your path. And you don't know that from teaching generally. A lot of the most gratifying parts of the job are silent and hidden. So it's um, it's a job. Uh, there's there's uh, the word for patience in Hebrew is savlanut, savlanut. So I, in my job, both in fundraising, which doesn't take place overnight, and improving the classroom, which doesn't take place overnight, and the impact of an improved classroom doesn't take place overnight. You got to wear your sovereignty socks. You got to have your patience. You got to be wearing your patience. You got to have it. You got to embrace it because that's the way it works. And it gets a little bit challenging, but uh, it does build character. My guest today has been Russ Roberts. He's president of Shalom College, host of the podcast Econ Talk, and the author of Wild Problems, a guide to the decisions that define us. Russ, thanks for being part of Historically Thinking again. Great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 